Okay, friends, take out your Bible. I invite you to find Luke 10. Um, I was having trouble standing still during worship. I'm having trouble standing still right now. Find Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is what we get to feast on together today. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. This is always true. It's true every week, but it's especially true this week that when, when it's your job to be a preacher and to bring a text and share it with the congregation, um, it's always true that there's nothing you can really add to what's already here. That the word of God is sufficient in itself and I don't add anything to it. It's particularly true this week because when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're overwhelmed by the feeling that this is perfection. There's nothing I can add to this that will make it better than it already is. And that's always true, but some weeks you recognize it more than others because Jesus is speaking and he's teaching and somebody makes the mistake of wanting to test him and that is not a safe thing to do because it's coming back hard, really hard. And so just get ready. It's gonna be hard. Somebody tests him and it's coming back, and it's coming back hard at me, it's coming back hard at you, and everyone that wants to have a conversation and listen to the words of Jesus. It's not a safe thing, okay? But I think it's gonna be really enjoyable too. So that's all for the introduction. Let's, let's read the text, and then the, the major part of our work is just gonna be to try to apply it to the context that we live in to take what's true and say, okay, what does this look like for me today? All right, let's stand in honor of God and his word. The parable, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Father, um, we all submit our hearts uh, to you for this time to give our, our full attention to the beautiful, hard, true word of Christ. We submit ourselves to its searching and its conviction and, and ask you for a softening of heart to, to live out what we find here. We want to do that for your sake, and we ask in the name of your wonderful son, Jesus, who spoke these words. Amen. All right, please be seated. Well, one, one question we might ask is, why has this parable taken such a, a high and familiar place in the public consciousness? Why has it held us in its grip for 2,000 years? Why is it that people who don't even read the Bible know this story? What is it about this parable? Why does it hold a place of prominence among the parables of Jesus? Well, I think the answer to that question is that it's shocking. We may not feel that way anymore because it's become so familiar to us over time. But when we stop and look again at the particulars, we remember and we notice again how shocking it is in in at least two ways. First of all, we have the shocking callousness of the religious leaders, the, the people who represent God, the priest and the Levite in the story, the professional religious people. We have their unbelievable, shocking callousness. A priest was someone who worked in the temple. A Levite was someone who helped the priests with their work. They were both um, professional religious people. They represented God to people and represented people to God. They were in the service of God. They knew God supposedly really well. So how fortunate for the man who fell among robbers and was lying there needing help, how fortunate for him that it just so happens that the first person coming around the bend is a priest, someone who knows God really well. Surely, if anyone is going to give help, if anyone is going to take the time to help, it will be him. And he doesn't. And then we have the Levite doing likewise. If anyone's going to help, it is going to be him. So it's all the more shocking that the very people we would have expected to be the first to help pass to the other side and do nothing for him. And then the other shock is the identity of the person who does stop to help him. Samaritans and Jews were enemies. In other words, the man who does help would be the least likely person to stop. We wouldn't be surprised at all in this story if the Samaritan came by first and almost celebrated that a Jew was dying on the side of the road and he passed by to the other side, just silently sort of glad that this is all happening. But the least likely person to help 
is the one who stops and not only helps, but helps to this great extent, deeply sacrificial extent. So the parable is designed to just bring us up short. It's designed to shock us out of proper religion. Obviously, there's something really, really, really wrong with the religious people in this story. The priest and the Levite. It's the hated Samaritan who proves to know more about true religion than them. And that's the parable's great power. It confronts religious people with the reality that they aren't as good as they think they are and that they have a lesson to learn from someone that they don't agree with and don't even like. How hard is that? I I can't think of anything harder or more offensive than that. And I can't think of anything that we need more than that, a healthy dose of humbling parable and to entertain the possibility that people that we disagree with politically, religiously, philosophically might be representing God more faithfully than us. That happens in this parable. And we have to entertain the possibility that it might be happening for me and for you today. How offensive is that? If that's an offensive thought to you, then we have arrived at exactly the place where the parable intends to take us. Jesus did not tell this parable for fun. It's not story hour at the library. It's not, oh, this is such a a wonderful story, and look at this guy. It's a confrontational story. The first two passers-by did not have to be a Levite and a priest. The, the parable could have helped. He could have just told the story about two random people coming by and not helping, and then this other guy coming by and helping. But they do have names. They do have identities. And the professional religious people are the callous ones. And the person they don't like represents God faithfully. So he told it to confront a religious person with his own deficiencies and to shock him out of his decaying proper religion into a true and beautiful practice of godliness. So we're here to hopefully experience the same thing. So let's give our attention to the critical lessons of the parable. Okay, we've talked about the shocking nature of the parable. Now let's talk about the critical lessons of the parable. And we'll list three of them, okay? I put them in the form of questions. So it's three questions to ask yourself on the basis of this exchange that we see here between the the lawyer and Jesus. And the first one is this. This is the first question to ask yourself. Have I understood my inability to meet the standard of the law regarding love? Have I understood my own inability to meet the standard of the law regarding love? The law of God reads that his people, this is verse 27, are to love the Lord your God with all your heart 
all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Would anyone here claim to be doing even one of those things, even 75% of the way? Not 100%, even 75%, 50%. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. I don't know what my percentages would be, but they're way lower, way lower than all. And I imagine you may have a similar feeling about yourself. Do we love God? Yes, yes we do, yes we do love God. Do we love God exclusively with all our heart? Do we love God with a greater passion or strength than any other thing in our lives? Does God have all of us? I don't think any of us would make those claims. I think we know that we all fall short of the standard of the law regarding love of God and even love of neighbor. And the first problem in this passage is that the lawyer thinks that he can meet the standard. We read in verse 29 that he asks Jesus a follow-up question about who exactly his neighbor is because he desired to, to justify himself. That's what the text says. Desiring to justify himself, he ask this follow-up question. What does that mean, that he wanted to justify himself? Well, it means he wanted to place himself on solid footing. He wanted to make sure that he was okay in the eyes of the law, that his standing before God was secure, that he was meeting all the right marks, okay? He wanted to make sure that he was good before the law because he believed that he was already loving God to an acceptable extent, He got the first part down. Did you notice he didn't ask any follow-up questions on that first part about loving God with all your heart, all your soul? I think that would have been my follow-up question. Like, how do I do that? But he doesn't ask anything about that. He's got that down. All he needs now is a technical answer to the second part. Who's my neighbor? Just delineate for me who's in and who's out, and then I will be good, and I will be okay in the sight of the law. If you can just tell me this one thing, and I'll love those 15 people, and I don't have to love them, and everything is good, I'll have eternal life. That's what it looks like to try to justify yourself. And notice that in that equation, there's no need for Jesus. It's just the law and me. Answer this question, I'll make sure I'm doing that, and I'll be good. And Jesus even admits that truth. He tells him, do this and you will live. And that's true. If we could love God, and if we did love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and did love our neighbor as ourselves, if we really did that, we would live. We would not need a Savior. We would be able to keep the law and enjoy life in the presence of God, have eternal life. But we can't. We cannot meet the standard of the law. How do we know? Because we love other things. We love our idols and give our strength to our idols. And we love these other things that we desire before God. We, we all know that that's true. 
Our own spirits convict us. Our minds are fallen. Our desires are fallen. And sin has corrupted every part of us. We can't meet the standard and love God with all of ourselves. But the problem is this lawyer thinks that he can. And he's wrong. It needs to be shown that he's wrong. Now, why are we taking the time to draw all these things out? Because some of you have known this for a long time. Here's the reason we have to take time to draw it out. It would be very easy to come to the parable of the Good Samaritan and read this and go home thinking that we all just need to be a little bit better. Go out and love people a little bit more. That's the main lesson of the story. And then we will please God. The temptation would be to do something called moralizing, which just means we all need to go out and be a little bit better people. The only problem for that is there's no room for Jesus in the equation. It's impossible to be just a little bit better and earn God's favor. Jesus is the one who has met the standard for us, okay? That's the first critical lesson to understand is that Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly. He did give God complete love, heart, soul, mind, strength. He fulfilled the law. He is the one who has loved his neighbor as himself. He is the one who gives God what we studied last week, that perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. It's him. The first lesson is, I can't. And Jesus has, therefore, I need Jesus. Even if you were to help a million stranded motorists, even if you were to help thousands of people dying on the road, you still have not loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have not met the standard of the law. Jesus has. You have to place your faith in him. That's the first thing, all right? Have I understood my own inability to meet the standard of the law regarding love. Here's the second question. Have I understood the extent of love? Have I really understood what it means biblically to love? Or is my definition of love too small? Would you just entertain for a moment the possibility that your view of love might be too small? It's pretty clear from the lawyer's actions, the guy that asked the questions, it's pretty clear that he has not understood love very well. His view of love is pretty small. He's not understood the the depth of godly love. He's not understood the scope of godly love. We know that he hasn't understood the depth of godly love because he thinks he's already loving God with all of himself. We know that he doesn't understand the scope of godly love because he's looking for people to leave out. He's looking for Jesus to slice off part of the population and say, you don't need to love them. They're not your neighbor, but these people are. He's deficient in both of those areas. He hasn't understood anything about the extent of godly love. 
He hasn't understood what the law of God means when it commands us to love. Well, what about you? Do you feel like you've really understood what God means to communicate when he commands you to love? Do you understand the depth of the requirement? Do you understand the scope of the requirement? It's possible, and it's maybe even likely, that we who bear God's name walk around with this really impoverished view of love. We're we're likely to practice a a really shallow and a really narrow, half-hearted, and I'm going to even use the word stingy, stingy love, and restrict that love to a few and leave out people that we don't naturally want to love. God's love is deep and wide, and our love is shallow and narrow, and it's a shallow and narrow love that's opposed in this parable. We've got two people who should know better passing by the dying man. How much more shallow and how much narrower could love be than that? And then we have this Samaritan who comes by and practices this broad love that even encompasses an enemy. And he practices this deep love that even gives the enemy his own animal to ride on and spends time touching the wounds of an enemy in a very delicate way and then takes that enemy to an innkeeper and gives the innkeeper two days' wages and a blank check. what our love is like and that's what the love of God is like in comparison to each other. At some point in your life, Christian, you have to make a decision. Here's the question. Am I content to simply be a religious person? Or in my life, do I want to reflect the character of God? I think a lot of us are content to just be a religious person. Go to church, pray before meals. Easy. There's another way to go through life, and that is to cultivate and practice a deep and broad love for people that reflects the character of God. That kind of life is costly. We see how much it costs the Samaritan. And we really don't even know how much it cost him in the end because he just says, here's a blank check. Whatever you spend on the guy, when I come back, I'll pay you. We have no idea how much he ended up spending. The question before all of us is, will the people who know God best, which is that the claim we're going to make? Is that the claim that we're going to make? Are we going to claim to know God the best? Will the people who know God best choose to reflect him best? Or will we settle for an easy but ugly convenience and punt beautiful, godly, 
love to people who don't know God. What's your view of love? And is it calibrated to godly love? The calibration here is the actions of the Good Samaritan. That's what godly love looks like. The depth and scope of his love. That's the calibration. Jesus says, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do like the Samaritan. That is to say, go and reflect the character of God. That's our second question. Have I understood the extent of love? The biblical extent of love? Can't meet the requirement of the law regarding love. Okay, first lesson. Second lesson. Have I understood the extent of love? Here's the last question. This one's really the hardest. Have I understood not the extent, but the priority of love? Have I understood the priority of love? This one's the hardest because it's the most confrontational. This question um, dives into the ugly part of the parable. The one we just talked about, the second part, really focuses on the beauty of the Samaritan and how that reflects the beautiful love of God. We got to focus on the beauty. In this third question, the focus really becomes the ugliness of the religious people that pass by, the priest and the Levite, and how they had better things to do. They had other Priorities than the dying man. And seeing these two forces us to ask the question, have I understood the priority of love? These two did not. Now, they may have affirmed the priority of love five minutes before they came upon the dying man. If you had asked them five minutes before they came around and saw him, how important is love? Oh, love is the most important thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. They knew that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, they would have affirmed that with their words that love is the priority. Love of God and love of neighbor. Yes, but when the critical moment came, when confronted with a real-life situation, when they had an opportunity to lay down what they wanted to do, to help someone who needed to be loved and needed compassion, they had a greater priority than love and compassion. It's just the plain, ugly truth. What was their other priority? We don't know. Some interpreters have said, well, they, they probably didn't want to defile themselves. Probably didn't want to touch a guy who was, who was dying or maybe dead because then they wouldn't be able to serve at the temple. Well, maybe, but maybe not. Did you notice the text says the priest was going down that road? He's going away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. He's not going to work. He's going to Jericho. There's no temple there. There's no excuse for him. And that's the point. There is no excuse. It's good that we don't know what was on their mind because there is nothing that would have been good enough. No excuse. Nothing 
is an acceptable reason for failing to give aid to someone who's dying in front of you. All we're left with is their unbelievable callousness. And this is from the leaders in religion. It's a scandal of putrid religion. And how could it possibly be? How could people possibly get to this point? And could it ever be us? If they were this ugly in their religion, is it not possible that we could be too? Are we better than them? I don't know if it's too early to do a post-mortem on COVID decision-making. It's probably too early to make any kind of comprehensive statement about how decisions got made during the COVID event. There's going to be some amazing books that get written over the next years about how people made decisions in that crucible. How did... How did governments make decisions? How did churches make decisions? How did schools make decisions? How did businesses make decisions? What did the leaders get right and what did they get wrong? And who did they listen to and who do they not listen to? We, we have been through a crucible moment, really hard, not unlike coming upon a man dying in the road. It's a moment that you're not prepared for. You're just thrown into it. Now, what are you going to do? No one's prepared. It's just there. Competing priorities. Competing motivations. And what's going to win out? The COVID event was a crucible for everybody, Christian and otherwise. Yeah, I think it's too early to say a lot of things with certainty. But one thing we can say, it's not too early to say this, that for those couple of years, especially early on, the idea of love, and especially the priority of love, took a lot of hits, even in Christian circles. Love, the idea of love was fired upon from many different angles in the Christian community. I'll just give you one example. I I heard arguments like this from Christians. The argument went something like this. You know, the first commandment is to love God. The second commandment is to love neighbor. That means that loving God comes before loving neighbor. So if I have to make a choice between loving God and loving neighbor, I'm going to choose loving God. Even though that could be hard for my neighbor, so be it, because I've got to love him first before I love my neighbor. That's a real argument that I know got made by a Christian. And what what we want to say regarding the priority of love is that argument is wrong, horribly wrong. And to support that, I would cite 1 Timothy 1, John 15, 1 Corinthians 13. If you ever find yourself trying to decide between loving God and loving your neighbor, you have arrived at an incoherent place 
that does not exist. There's no conflict between loving God and loving neighbor. We love God by loving our neighbor. When we really do love God and know God, the demonstration of that in real time is a willingness to lay down everything to look like him for the benefit of our neighbor. Our time, our freedoms, our privileges, our money, our opinions, our prejudices, whatever is necessary, that's how we show that we understand who God is, the God we claim to worship. That when the crucible comes, when the critical moment comes, our instincts are trained toward love and not self-preservation. That was the great ugly error of the priest and the Levite, that when the crucial moment came, not five minutes before when they would have affirmed it with their words, when the crucial moment came and their neighbor needed to be loved, they failed. They chose something else. We don't know what it was. Whatever it was, it wasn't good enough. The one thing that was needed in the moment, someone to represent God, didn't come along until the Samaritan came. The Samaritan of of all people. I'm not saying anything political. I'm saying something theological. That God is love. And he has given all to love and save people who are enemies to him. And if we have benefited from that kind of love, we are absolutely free, absolutely free to lay down anything we have for the benefit of other people. Freedom in Christ means nothing if it does not mean the freedom to give away everything for the benefit of someone that needs to live whatever we have. So let calamity come, let imprisonment come, let poverty come, let evil come, whatever. Only give us God as our possession and let us reflect that God we love to other people who are dying in this world. Because if in the end our religion does not lead us toward a more godly love for people, broad and sacrificial, our religion will putrefy. And it will lead us toward ugly and inexcusable indifference. And worse, toward ugly and inexcusable violence. You know, that happens in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 10, the priests are just passing by the man with indifference. And by Luke 23, the priests are killing an innocent man. And so, we have to understand that we can get there and that occasionally we need to be shocked back to reality, shocked out of our proper religion in our normal course of activity and scruples and priorities. Now, we're done. That's it. And if, if we're shocked and offended, then we've gotten the point of the parable. Better to be repentant and obedient and go and live out the parable. Well, that's what Jesus says. You go and do likewise.
Father, we ask that you would flood our hearts with your love. We, we confess to you that we do have competing priorities. We have fears and doubts. We have sins. We have prejudices. We have things in our lives that keep us from reflecting this kind of love and is wrong. Thank you that you've shown us that it's wrong. It's hard to hear. The word of Christ confronts all of these things in us. It holds up a mirror and says, this is not right. This is not God. Go and do this instead. And so so we ask for a more godly love and that you would empower that godly love by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We ask in Jesus' beautiful name, amen.